Good. Before we get started, I just want to remind you to take your cell phone out and turn the volume off because that way you won't end up having to search down in your bag for it when it rings. Okay, um, let's pray real quick. Actually, Jordan, or no, Jeff, can I get this down just a little bit because it's buzzing? Thanks. Let's turn to Psalm 27, and we're going to pray for a minute. Abba, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would send forth your word like an arrow to pierce our hearts, that you would empower us, God, to walk in holiness, to walk in abandonment before you, in Jesus' name. Well, as Stuart said, I'm on the night watch. I've been on the night watch for six and a half years. I love it. I um, have such joy in being there and running with the other 100 staff that are part of the night watch at the House of Prayer. And in the midst of that, we just we have had so many um, just good times of fellowshipping with one another around the word. And so it's my privilege to be a part of that community. And I encourage you, if you're here and you want to come to the night, watch one of the nights, to just come check it out and see what it's about, all these crazy people that stay up until 6 a.m. in the morning. So um, Psalm 27.4 to me is really the heart cry of all of us because as this seminar is called, called to devotion, I don't think of it so much as a calling specifically, like being called to be a prophet or called to be an apostle. I think of being called to devotion as a calling that the Lord is giving to every single believer in the body of Christ. And so to me, even though the title of this seminar is Mary of Bethany, I believe that all of us are called to that same level of extravagant devotion that Mary of Bethany personifies in the word of God. So even as you're sitting here, whether you feel like that's something that speaks of you or something that doesn't, I would encourage you to just set your heart before the Lord and say, this is who I want to be. And I believe that that is a gift that he wants to give to all of us in the body of Christ. In Psalm 27, David says this thing in verse four, he says, one thing I have desired of the Lord that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And in Acts, we see that David was called a man after God's own heart. And this reality to me is really speaking of the heart cry of David found in Psalm 27, 4. And being a man after God's own heart means that that's somebody that the Lord is setting forth that we can emulate, that we can actually look at his life and say, I want to pursue that too. So if this was the one thing, the one cry of David's heart, then why can't it be the one cry of my heart or of your heart? It doesn't have to be only for David. It can be for all of us because we are all called to that same reality of being after God's own heart. And I believe that David is a man that God set forth for all of us to imitate and to look at and go, I want to be like that. In this verse, David declared the primary preoccupation of his heart. In other words, this verse is talking about his secret motivation. This was the thing that propelled him forward in every season of his life. And if we know anything about David's life, we know that the seasons were very different and they were all filled with different aspects of turmoil. I mean, first of all, he's the youngest of all these brothers 
And he gets sent out to do the dirty work in the backside of the field and watch over those stubborn animals that don't do anything you tell them to. He gets sent out to the middle of nowhere. And yet in that place, I believe that that is where that heart cry began to be formed within him. And then in a moment, he's taken from that into the household of the king of Israel because he slays this giant. And so he goes from utter obscurity to being this man that the king is setting forth and being called into the um, court of the king to play for him. And just I can't even imagine the rush that must have been to go from being a nobody to being known as the one who the king of Israel chose to come into his court. And then he goes from that to being a man who is being pursued by that very same king in hiding for years and years and just on um, the turmoil of waiting for the promise of God. And at the same time going, I'm not going to take it into my own hands. And then he becomes king. And we all know the story of the things that happened to him during that time, the census that he took that he wasn't supposed to take, the woman that he took that he wasn't supposed to take. And then he gets um, taken by his son who decides to become king in his place and once again is running for his life. Yet in every season, I believe that this cry was still the the baseline foundation for what David stood for. He said, one thing have I desired, whether I'm on the backside of the field watching my father's sheep or whether I'm king of a nation or whether my son is pursuing me in order to destroy my life or whether I'm in hiding from another king, whatever season I'm in, one thing have I desired of the Lord. And there is really power in this idea of having one thing as the preoccupation of our life. I like to think of it as um, our primary preoccupation because there's many things that have to occupy our time. There's many things that we have to do. Some of you are called to the marketplace. Some of you are called to the home. Some of you are called to um, go out and be missionaries in other nations. And all of those things have to occupy our time. But at the end of the day, there's one thing that is to preoccupy us in the deepest place of our heart. And there is so much power in having that one thing in our life. Because I'm sure you've seen that in people that don't have one primary focus, their strength is so diluted. They're so weakened in their ability to actually accomplish the things that are on their heart. So there's power as we give ourselves to one thing. Without it, we will have emotional fatigue. We will have um, hopelessness. We will... We will not enter into the fullness of what God had for our life. So we really want to give ourselves to this thing. Now, the thing I love about this is, first of all, David says, one thing have I desired. In other words, this is the thing that gripped his heart for his entire life. And I don't believe that it started out necessarily as a strong feeling that he felt every morning when he woke up. But it was a desire that was cultivated over years and years of reminding his soul and reminding the Lord, this is what I'm going after. This is what I crave more than any other thing. And the second thing is that David sought it. Um, it's interesting because in the Bible, we see that God loves to hide. 
He loves to hide himself, not because he thinks it's some kind of sick game. He loves to do it because he wants to find out who is hungry enough to seek after the deep things of his heart. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 2. You don't have to turn there, but I encourage you to write it down and look at it later. It says in verse 6 that we speak the wisdom among those who are mature Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. In other words, God has things hidden in his heart and it's our glory. It says in Proverbs to search those things out in the heart of God and to find out who he is. And I believe that that was something that David locked into. He said, I'm going to desire it, but I'm not just going to desire it. You know, we all have those things. We're like, well, I want to do this someday or I'm, I want to meet that person or I want to have this thing. He didn't just desire it. He said, no, I'm going to seek after it. I'm going to give my emotional energy. I'm going to give my time, my money, my strength to finding out this one thing. And the thing that he was seeking was the beauty of God. And it says in the same passage in first Corinthians two, it says, as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And then I love this verse, verse 10. But God has revealed them to us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. In other words, we can seek out this reality of the beauty of God and of knowing him. Because inside of us is the spirit searching the deep things of God to make them known. To be a person of one thing is to realize that our primary identity above all other things is to love God and to be loved by him. In other words, I think of it as making the first commandment really first. This is a phrase that I've heard since I was 15 years old. And to me, it's not just something that we say so that we sound more spiritual. It's something that we seek after with all of our hearts. What does it look like to be a person who loves God with all of your heart? What does it look like to be a person who loves God with your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul? That's what being a person of one thing is talking about. The second thing I think um, about when I think of one thing is not only seeking to know Jesus and see his beauty, but also to be anointed with the power to love him back because that's what we all long for. We all want to love him more. And as we seek to be a person of one thing, we're crying out to see his beauty and we're crying out that he would anoint our hearts so that we would have power to love him more. Okay. I want to look at Mary of Bethany because I think she really personifies in the new Testament, this same cry that David had. Let's look at Luke 10. Mary of Bethany shows up three different times in the New Testament. She, she's actually mentioned in five passages, but her name is not mentioned in two of them. But we know that it's the same um, time period in the same situation, but her name just isn't said in two of them. So um, Luke 10, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. And really what happened with Jesus is he spent most of his ministry up north in Galilee. He very rarely came down to Jerusalem. 
And the reason for that, I believe, was because he knew it wasn't his time yet. There were men in Jerusalem who were seeking to kill him, who were seeking to discredit him. And so he mostly did his ministry up in the northern part of Israel. But occasionally he would come down at strategic times to Jerusalem. And one of those times he came down, he came to the house of this woman named Martha. And it's here in Luke 10, 38. It says, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And it seems likely to the scholars that this was Martha's house because her parents had died. And she probably received the house as an inheritance um, rather than going to her sister Mary or her brother Lazarus. It was most likely hers because she was the oldest. So he comes into the house of Martha. Then it says in verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus's feet and heard his word. And I love this about Mary. And I think that sometimes we think of Mary kind of like sitting at Jesus' feet with this dazed look on her face like, oh, I don't think about Mary that way. I think we're going to be surprised when we see her in heaven. She's probably not going to be some kind of like floaty little like, oh, I think that she's like intense. She's probably just crazy. You know, we're probably going to meet her and she's going to be like, you have no idea who he was. And, oh, you know. I don't know, but I don't think she's this quiet little oh, kind of person, but she, she was sitting at his feet. She wasn't rushing around the house doing anything else. She was sitting at his feet, hearing his word. And I believe that she really found her place of identity in sitting before him, not in doing things for him, but in actually being before him and hearing what he had to say. It says that she heard the word of Jesus. And to me, hearing the word of Jesus isn't just hearing the words that come from his mouth, but actually having it bear fruit of revelation in our hearts. And I think that's what happened to her. It reminds me of in the book of Song, Song of Solomon in the first chapter, the second verse, the Shulamite woman cries out for the kisses of his mouth and if you take that into the spiritual allegorical context, this, the kisses of the mouth of God is speaking of his word. And actually the rabbis throughout history have said that this is talking about the very word of God coming and touching our hearts. And I believe that's what was happening with Mary. She goes, I have to know his word. I have to know the kisses of his word. I have to have revelation in my heart about who he is. It's like that verse um, in Matthew 4 where Jesus quotes Deuteronomy and he says, you don't live by bread alone. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I believe that Mary had entered into that. And the idea of hearing his word isn't just academically. It's not just talking about understanding the word of God intellectually. It's talking about intimacy with God through the word as it pertains to our prayer life, as it pertains to actually getting to know him and having revelation and understanding. And Jesus um, actually told the Pharisees in John 5, he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. In other words, he's saying there's nothing wrong with having an academic understanding of the word of God, but you haven't come to me. You haven't actually met the man Christ Jesus in the word that you're reading. And I believe Mary understood that. And she said, I want to meet him. I want to know him. I want to hear his word, not just know about him. I want to have an intimate communion with him. 
Then in the next verse, it says, but Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. So Martha comes in and begins to complain about Mary's seeming inactivity. She's going, hello, I'm in the kitchen making this great meal for you. And she's in here doing, I don't know what, but obviously not anything important. So will you please tell her to come in and help me? And Jesus actually rebukes Martha in, a, I believe, a very serious way. And he describes her as being bothered and being anxious and being distracted. I don't think he rebuked her for being a servant. He didn't rebuke her for the gifting that she had of hospitality. He didn't rebuke her for wanting to um, pour out her life in the place of service. What he rebuked her for was being worried and being distracted. And the reason for this, I believe, was because Jesus was only at their house a few times over those three and a half years. He did not spend weekends in Bethany at the home of Martha. He only spent a few precious hours there. And instead of realizing the moment of her visitation, Martha was so consumed with all the other things that she had to do. In other words, the very son of God was speaking in her living room and she's off in the kitchen making her checklist of what needs to be done so that dinner can be on the table. Now, I love Martha. I have to say that most of us in this room probably have that same thing in us. We love to serve, but we sometimes get a little distracted and worried about all those other things. So I, I'm fully, um, and I know Jesus loved Martha too, because it says that he loved them. But, um, I, I want to learn from the lesson that the Lord gave to her, which was, can you do the work of service, but at the same time, keep one thing primary in your heart and have one preoccupation. This is an indictment for Martha's preoccupation with other issues when she was in the time of, of Um, visitation. It was not an indictment against serving in the small things. And I want to say that clearly because that's actually a mark of our maturity in the Lord is our ability to serve others without grumbling, without complaining. But we also have to know that in the midst of serving, there has to be a focus in our hearts that sets him first. I believe that to Mary, she had many things on her list of things to do, but she also realized that there was one primary thing that in that moment she should be doing and all the other things could wait for a couple of minutes while the son of God himself spoke the word in the house. Um, I believe that Jesus was saying to Martha, Martha, if you had this one thing at the core of your being you would not have as much of a troubled spirit and as much of a worried mind. You need to choose the good part, which can't be taken away from you. Worry and trouble will get you so many places and it will bring so many things to you that at the end of the day, aren't going to accomplish anything in your heart and God. But if you're focused on one thing, that thing, that place of listening to the word of God will actually bring revelation to your heart. And that cannot be taken away from you. We see Mary again in Mark 14. If you want to turn there. And this, this story about Mary, this one in Mark 14 is found in um, John 12. 
And it's found in Matthew 26 as well. And Mary is mentioned by name in John 12. Here she's just spoken of as a woman who comes um, to pour this huge bottle of perfume all over Jesus. Mark 14 opens with Jesus once again in Bethany. And it's believed that he spent his last week before the crucifixion at Martha's house. And here he is. It's two days until the Passover. And he is visiting his friend Simon in the same city, the city of Bethany. And it says in verse 3 of Mark 14, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves, and they said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. So here Jesus is once again in Bethany. And he is sitting at the table just reclining. And um, he had told his disciples in, in the story in Matthew 26, just verses before this account is given. He goes, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. And for some reason, these guys who'd been with him for three years, they were his best friends. They're just not getting it. They are like clueless about the hour that they are living in. And Jesus tells them over and over again, guys, I'm setting my face like Flint to go to Jerusalem. And the son of man is going to be crucified. One of his disciples even rebukes him. You know, Lord, don't say these things. I mean, they were just not getting it. But here Jesus is two days before he's about to be taken before the Sanhedrin and crucified. And he's sitting in this house. And there is one person in that house who actually believes what he said, who actually believes the hour that she is a part of and who actually wants to partake of the truth that Jesus is speaking. And that's Mary. Mary enters the house in a moment with this huge bottle of perfume. And it's believed that just like Martha got a house, that Mary also got an inheritance. And this this perfume was in a bottle that had a long neck. It was a glass bottle. And it was worth about $30,000 today. She was It was basically a year's wages in her time. And she took that bottle and she walks in and she breaks it and pours it all over Jesus. At, at that moment, I believe she was not doing something strange or erratic. She was doing the most extravagant and the most wise thing, knowing the hour that she was living in, knowing and believing the truth of what Jesus said about the fact that he was about to, to die and go to the cross. In the middle of the meal, Mary walks in with her entire inheritance. And I love thinking about this inheritance that we ha- she had because it represented the fact um, that her parents had given her something. It represented her remembrance of them. It represented their plans for her life. It represented her own present security. If at any moment anything went wrong, Mary could have gone and sold that flask of perfume and made a living for herself. It also represented her future. It was the thing that was to keep her 
until the end of her days. And yet in a moment, she chose to give everything, to give away everything from her past, to give away everything from her present and everything pertaining to her future because she believed what Jesus said. She believed that he truly was going to die and she wanted to give him everything. She knew he would never be in their house that way again. She knew that the moments were coming to a close when the son of God, the word made flesh would actually sit in their midst and talk. And she wanted to give all that she could. It says in John 12 that the entire house was filled with the fragrance. And this kind of perfume is so fragrant. It, it doesn't go away after a few hours. It's scent lingers for many, many days. And I believe that even when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that he still had the fragrance of this perfume. And what's interesting is Mary not only poured it over Jesus, but she poured it on his feet and began to wipe his feet with her hair, which meant that fragrance got all over her as well. And so it just is so interesting to think of Jesus carrying his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. And here's a woman who smells just like the man that is walking down the street carrying his cross. Because in a moment she wasted her entire life on him. However, the disciples were indignant. They were judging her. They said, Lord, how could you let her waste her entire inheritance on this? I mean, for she could have really sold this and given it to the poor. I mean, really. Think about it. And Jesus looks at them and he goes, you leave her alone. In other words, he said, all you can think about right now are the things of the flesh. You cannot see what the spirit sees. Now, obviously the disciples had heard the word of Jesus and they loved him very much. But in this moment, they were being so carnal minded. They were not setting their minds on the things of God. And Jesus said, leave her alone. You do not know what she has done for me. You do not know that she has anointed my body for burial. And this thing will be spoken of her wherever the gospel is preached for all the years and years to come. Jesus honored her devotion and her extravagance and said that it would be known throughout the world wherever the gospel is preached forever, forever. 2000 years later, wherever the gospel is preached, this woman is spoken of. Because she was willing to waste it all at the feet of Jesus. And I believe that this same extravagant devotion is available to us today. And obviously we don't have Jesus sitting in our living room where we can sit down and hear his words. But we have Jesus, the man who sent his spirit to live with us on the inside. And how often do we remember that he is on the inside going fellowship with me? Listen to my word. How often do we take this book that was given to us filled with the words of that same man and sit before it for an hour or two and leave aside our many things? We will always have many things to do, but we will not always have this 70 years that we have to sit before this word and let it change our hearts. I believe that God is looking for a people who will walk out the first commandment, which I believe was one of the glories of the life of Mary, that she loved the Lord, her God, not just with her mouth, but with her very strength, 
When I think of loving him with our strength, I think of what Mary did. She took all her financial um, stability and she wasted it at the feet of Jesus. She took her time when she could have been doing all those other things and stayed at the feet of Jesus. She took her um, trust in John 11 when her brother died, when she could have just gone, you know what? I don't, I'm not really sure what I think about you because you didn't come when we asked you to. And now my brother's dead. Instead, she comes and runs to the feet of Jesus in the place of faith and trust and knowing that he will do what he said he will do. That's what I believe walking out the first commandment looks like the way we enter into a life of devotion like Mary is so simple, but it will cost us everything. It really will. If we choose to set our hearts for this, it will really cost us so many things in our life. And I think of that parable where Jesus talks about the seed that gets sown on the different soil and some of the soil is rocky and the people can't receive the word of God. And some of the soil is filled with the cares of this life and the word is choked. But there's a seed that goes on soil and those people bear 30, 60 and 100 fold fruit. And I believe that's available to all of us in this age. A couple of things I think characterize a person of extravagant devotion the first one, I believe, is the pursuit of 100-fold obedience before the Lord. And by that, what I mean is that we make a covenant with our eyes, that we ask the Lord to help us not to look on any vain thing, that we ask the Lord to, to help us with the issues of lust that grow in our hearts through the gate of our eyes, men and women. I believe that the, that the pursuit of 100-fold obedience is involved in bridling our speech. It's involved in taking this thing called our mouths and our tongue and actually asking the Lord to set a guard over it so that we speak what edifies others, so that we don't complain, so that we don't gossip and slander, that we actually use this as a tool to give grace to others. I believe 100-fold obedience is involved in the way we manage our time and our money. I think that a person of extravagant devotion is characterized by embracing things because of love that are not required. There's a verse in Psalm 25. It says the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. And I don't believe that's just speaking about prophetic revelations about when the next natural disaster is going to hit. Although I believe it entails that entails that. But I also believe that secret is about asking the Lord, God, what would you have me do over and above the, the foundational things over and above, you know, the, just the norm of Christianity. What can I give you? That's what a person of extravagant devotion says, Lord, I know that technically I don't have to give you these two hours that I'm going to spend hanging out with my friends. But what if I did? What if I spent those two hours before your word? Or maybe for you, it's the issue of finances. Maybe it's, Lord, what would you enable me to give you in the way of this thing, that this entrustment called money that you've given to me in this age? Or maybe it's something to do with the way that um, you walk out the Sermon on the Mount. Any of those things, it's a heart that says, I want to go beyond. I don't want to see how close to the line I can get. I want to go extravagantly into the place of holiness. I believe a person of extravagant devotion does not count the cost. 
Because I don't believe that Mary stood in her room with that jar in her hands going, should I? I mean, this might be a really dumb thing to do. I mean, it is my whole savings account. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not wise. Maybe I should go ask Martha first before I do this. No, she understood. She had revelation piercing her heart about who the man Christ Jesus was. I believe it came from the hours that she sat listening to his word. And from that revelation, she said, I'm not going to count the cost. I'm going to give everything. I don't care. I don't care if I lose my reputation. I don't care if I lose all the honor and the promotion that I could have had. I'm going to give everything to him. And the other thing that I love about extravagant devotion is that the prize of extravagant devotion is extravagant devotion. They're not looking for anything else. Mary wasn't looking to be known throughout all the world wherever the gospel was preached. That wasn't her goal. Her goal was Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on the earth. The Holy Spirit emphasized that Mary sat at Jesus' feet to hear his word. And I believe this is the tool that we use to become a person of extravagant devotion. Like I said, it's so simple, but it really will cost us everything. Because in order to sit before this word, we have to do something with our time. We have to do something with our money. We have to do something with our hearts because this word is living and active and it will pierce us. It will cause offense in us. It will come and change us. It will cause us to see things in a different light. And by sitting before the word, I don't even just mean reading through it. I mean where we take the word and we pray the word back to God and we dialogue with him about what he's saying in this word. I believe it's also about fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit taking those moments. It's just, you know, those three to five minutes throughout the day and stopping and thinking about the one who lives inside of you and saying, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your leadership. Just those simple things of just remembering him, of having him as the primary preoccupation. Some of you are nurses. You spend your night in a hospital changing diapers and giving meds. You can still do this. It's not impossible. Some of you are students. You can take that hour before you um, go to sleep at night or you can take that 30 minutes in the morning and you can do this. And then throughout the day as you're walking to your class, Holy Spirit, thank you for who you are. That's what a heart of one thing looks like. It's setting ourselves before the word. And I love that the word is so living that if we even take a minute to meditate on it, that it stays with us throughout the day. And we can actually come before him again and again, even as we're serving, even as we're giving ourselves um, to others in the place of service. These things do not just come to us. I believe that being a person of extravagant devotion also means that we continually realign our hearts. I know for me, I've been in the house of prayer for seven years. But I tell you one thing, being there in name is much different from being there in reality. And actually coming again and going, one thing have I desired. It's when you get a little bit off for a few weeks, you go, Oh, wait, what was that thing again? What was my life vision really about? It was about beholding the beauty of the Lord. It was about giving extravagant devotion. And I love that the Holy Spirit is inside of us to remind us and to help us. I love that verse in John 14 where Jesus says, I will pray the Father and he will give you a helper. The Holy Spirit is in us to help us in this journey of extravagant devotion And Jesus actually said in John 16, it's to your advantage if I go away, 
because I'm going to send another and he's going to remind you of everything I said. So I just want to pray for us for a minute and ask the Lord to give us strength to align our hearts, to be a people of one thing, to be a people like Mary. Abba, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for what you are doing in our hearts that you're calling forth. God, a people in this hour of history who will waste it all at your feet out of love and out of revelation. Although we just present ourselves before you right now. We just present ourselves to you, O oh God. God, we ask for a spirit of revelation about who you are. I just feel like some of you are in a place where you are asking the question, God, what more can I give? You've done the foundational things. You've done what's required, but you want to give above. So God, we ask, would you tell us, would you speak to us? God, what can we do? Lord, what would please your heart? Lord, what are the things that you would love to see us do in this hour? God, what are those little ways, those little whispers of the things on your heart that we can enter into now? Teach us to be a people of extravagance, oh God. Lord, I ask that you would give us strength to take our life and break it at your feet. To not hold on to our reputation, oh God. To not hold on to our honor before men. To not hold on to the fading cares of this life. But to give it all before you, God. Lord, I ask that you would empower us to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, O oh God. your word be alive in our hearts we ask in jesus name amen bless you guys